The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Season 2 of Breakdown, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season's program, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or murder? Go to myajc.com slash breakdown for photos, videos, and additional background. Justin Ross Harris killed his son Cooper, just 22 months old. He left him in the back of a hot car for hour upon hour until the intense heat destroyed his body, system by system. It was a horrific death for one so small, so young, so innocent. And Cooper's passing seized the attention of the world, which instantly passed judgment on Ross Harris. When the shocking revelations began to come out, the news that Harris was cheating on his wife, that he was sexting with multiple women even as his son was dying, that all but sealed his fate in the minds of many. But did Ross Harris really intend to kill his little boy? The state of Georgia believes he did and plans to put him on trial for malice murder on April the 11th. Malice murder. That means Ross Harris meant to lock his child in the car, that he intended for his son to suffer so horribly and to die so tragically. Or did he? Welcome to Season 2 of Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I've covered courts and legal affairs for 25 years. I've seen some amazing, horrific, incredibly sad cases. And this is among the saddest and most horrific. So here is the story of Ross Harris and his dead son, Cooper. I'll plant questions in your mind about Harris's guilt, and I'll plant doubts in your mind about his innocence. A note before we get started. I want to warn you that this podcast includes content that some listeners, especially children, may find disturbing. Let's return to that day in June 2014, the last day of Cooper Harris's life. Developing this noon, police have charged a father with murder after his toddler died in a hot car. The new information we've uncovered about the moment he found his son. Right now, the Cobb County father is in jail for the death of his 22-month-old son. Police say it was 88 degrees outside when he realized he left the child in the car. Ross and Leanna Harris had moved to suburban Cobb County from Alabama two years before. Ross was an IT specialist at Home Depot. He was 33. Leanna was a dietitian who worked out of the home. She was 30. Cooper was their only child. That morning, it was Ross's turn to take Cooper to daycare at the Little Apron Academy, less than a half mile from his office. As they did two or three times a month, father and son stopped in for breakfast at the Chick-fil-A nearby. Police say they left the restaurant at 9.19 a.m. They quickly came to a traffic light, and Ross Harris had to make a decision. 
A left turn would take them to the daycare at Little Apron. Going straight would take Harris to work, just a quarter mile away. If this was an accident, as Harris has always maintained, how long did it take him to forget that his son was in the car? Well, I made the trip to see. So I'm in the parking lot of the Chick-fil-A on Cumberland Parkway. About a quarter mile away is Little Apron Academy, where Cooper went to daycare. And about a quarter mile straight away is where Ross Harris worked. So if I'm trying to recreate this, I would have just strapped Cooper into his car seat. I would have given him a kiss. This is what Ross Harris told police later that day of the incident, that he always gave Cooper a kiss and that Cooper always gave him a kiss back because Ross said because if he ever got into a car accident and died, he wanted Cooper's last memory to be that his daddy loved him. So right now I'm going to start timing how long it takes till he had to make the decision whether to turn to go to Little Apron or to go straight to his work. So let's start. I'm going to set my timer. Okay, I'm going to get in the car. Okay, I got to back out of here and then I got to go on Cumberland Parkway. And I have to make a U-turn to get to the intersection. where he goes to either go to work or go to the daycare. I'm at the U-turn. Making the U-turn. I don't have far to go at all. This is a very short time. I drove the route four times and timed it. One thing's certain. You have to deal with a lot of traffic in a very short stretch of road. That traffic meant that it took me anywhere from 1 minute 15 seconds to 1 minute 52 seconds to get to the intersection. In other words, if Ross Harris is really telling the truth, it took him less than two minutes to forget that his son was in the car. My times ranged from 1 minute 15 seconds to 1 minute 52 seconds. Remember those times. They'll become important later on. That morning, Harris drove straight instead of turning left. He arrived at his office building at 9.25 a.m. Police say... He left work that day at 4.15 to meet some friends and go see the movie 22 Jump Street at 5 o'clock. Leaving for the movie, he got into his car at the office parking lot and then drove about two miles. Harris told police he then looked to his right while making a lane change and realized Cooper was still strapped into the car seat behind him. The rear-facing car seat was in the center of the back seat, and police have said Cooper's head was only inches away from his father's head. Harris wheeled into the parking lot of Acres Mill Square, a shopping center, and screeched to a halt. One of the first people to see Harris drive up was Leonard Madden. He was meeting a friend at a Mexican restaurant in the shopping center. Madden knew something was wrong by the look on his friend's face. She was pointing at Harris's car, and Madden walked over to see what was going on. Here's what he had to say when he testified at a court hearing after Harris was charged with murder. I went closer to see for myself what was going on. I saw a figure, but I wasn't able to tell from where I was walking um, who it was or the age. But when I got closer, I thought it was a doll. And about three or four feet away, 
I noticed that it was the body of a toddler. Right then, my, my heart dropped uh, because I saw this, this precious boy laying there, lifeless. Uh, the father, Mr. Ross, as I got closer, um, you could just hear uh, his cries and uh, his desperation for his son to be revived. Well, he was saying, oh my God, oh my God, my son is dead, oh my God. He was screaming, he was, he was very hurt. I heard the desperate cries of a father who had just lost his son. That kind of anguish is something that no one would ever forget. And you probably won't forget this. What you're about to hear is really hard to listen to. But remember, this is the death of a young child in a terrible way. This shows us the horror, anguish, and despair of a father who suddenly realizes he has caused his son's death. This is not from the Harris case. This is a 911 call from Wade Naramore, an Arkansas judge. He left his 18-month-old son in the back of his car for five hours almost a year ago. 911, state your emergency. Uh, my son's in the car, and, uh, and I, uh, he's taking that long. Listen to me. Where are you located? I'm at the intersection of James and Fair Oaks, please. I think he's dead. Let me get you to the city. Hang on. No! No! Leaving your child in a hot car, forgetting he was even there, that would never happen to you, right? We asked people all over Metro Atlanta, this is what they had to say. Not me, that's for damn sure. No, you wouldn't know that a child is back there. Why would you leave him? I mean, I've got three kids, so I mean, I would pray to God that would never happen, but anything's possible. My children are, as you can see, loud, obnoxious, but there's no way I could leave them in the car, and there's no way you could have forgotten your child was in the car. I'm sorry. There, there's just no way. No. After going through nine months of childbirth, there's no way that in the world that I want to lose my child to something as devastating as that. No, I can't do that because I always have them on my mind when I'm getting in and out. No, I would never do that. I always remember because that would be a horrible thing. I think I will remember my babies in the back. Heavens no. I wouldn't leave a child back. Well, absolutely not. So basically you're asking me whether I think I could be neglectful. No. Period. No. So we're all feeling pretty smug about this. We'd never do that to our kids, right? The biggest mistake anyone can ever make is to think that this cannot happen to them. And that really is what people believe, but it's not true. That's Jeanette Fennell, who founded KidsAndCars.org, a nonprofit safety group. The situation where a child is left alone in a hot vehicle and they die from heat stroke or hyperthermia happens on average 37 times every year. And that's one child dying every 9 to 10 days. Fennell took an interesting and frankly frightening route to founding Kids and Cars. It began with the kidnapping and near murder of her and her husband in 1995. They were abducted from their home in San Francisco on Halloween night, driven to a secluded location, beaten, robbed, and then left for dead in the trunk of their car. They ultimately escaped. And Fennell decided that her new mission in life was to have all cars made with an internal trunk release that would prevent people from being trapped. Thanks to her efforts, the release became standard equipment in all cars after 2001. 
Fennel then devoted herself to protecting children in and around motor vehicles. This includes those being left in hot cars and what can be done to prevent it from happening. Her research has led her to believe that nearly all these accidents have a common denominator. When we look at these type of situations, the number one thread that goes through everything is usually a change in routine. And sometimes it can be so subtle. It can be something like turning right instead of turning left or encountering a detour or the phone rings or, you know, getting into a a song that you're listening to, which sends you on autopilot and you kind of forget that your most precious little cargo in the back seat has fallen asleep, they're rear-facing, and you really don't think they're with you anymore. Fennell also puts the lie to the assumption that these tragedies only happen to bad parents. Quite the opposite. Fennell thinks such accidents are a trick of the mind, not of the heart. It's a very interesting situation because in 90% of these cases, it's some of the best parents you would ever want to meet. And in 10% of the cases, it might involve parents who have been drinking or have a problem with drugs or possibly an interaction with Child Protective Services. But if you ask the average person, um, you know, if I gave that 90 to 10 split, which category would they give to each one? Almost every single time the answer would be, oh, 90% of the time it is parents that probably don't care about their kids or don't keep them as their number one priority. But 10% of the time, I could see that it might happen to parents that are good parents. And they're pretty surprised to know that it's exactly the opposite. We have totally the wrong perception about this issue. If Ross Harris's son had died in a different state, this case might have gone in a different direction. He might not be facing charges at all. According to Kids and Cars, In 385 cases where children died of heat stroke after being left in cars through 2014, authorities did not bring charges 39% of the time. And 9% of the cases that were charged ended in acquittals. Remember that judge in Arkansas? He was recently charged with negligent homicide. That's a misdemeanor. And take this case from Ohio, which seems pretty unbelievable. An assistant principal of a middle school in Batavia left her two-year-old daughter in the car for eight hours, killing her child. According to reports, the woman was on her way to work and found that it was too early to drop the child at daycare. So instead, she went to a donut shop to buy donuts for her teachers. She then drove to school, and what happened next was recorded on the school's surveillance camera. The woman backed up to the school entrance, unloaded the donuts, passing by her daughter on the driver's side of the car six times. She then parked the car and went into work. In addition, the same woman had left the same child in her car a week earlier. Here is Brenda Slaby describing what happened during an interview with Oprah Winfrey. I was sitting in my office, and a good teacher friend of mine, and sometimes I think it was a blessing, it was her, Mm -hmm. uh, was on her way home, and she walked by my car. She ran into my office, and she said, Brenda, your baby's in the car. (sighs) First thing out of her mind, what out of her mouth was, did you go pick her up and leave her there while you were doing something else? I said, no. I grabbed my keys out of my desk drawer, no shoes or anything, ran as fast as I could to my car. And I knew what I was going to find. 
I opened my car door, and I remember hearing the voices around me, teachers who were close to me, mm -hmm. screaming. I grabbed Cecilia out of the car, and I remember feeling the car seat come with her, so I think I yanked her so hard to get her out. I, I took her, and I knew she was gone. As soon as I picked her up, I knew. And I remember I, I took her, and I ran through the parking lot with her, screaming her name. The county prosecutor didn't file any charges against Slaby. In a statement, he said he thought the child's death was a tragic accident and that her mother had suffered enough. Ross Harris is not the first person in Georgia to be charged with murder for leaving a child to die in a hot car. The other case took place in Jonesboro, Georgia. Atlantans will know Jonesboro as a southern suburb. People from outside Atlanta may recognize Jonesboro as the location of Tara and Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. On a sweltering afternoon in June 2011, almost exactly three years before Cooper Harris died, two-year-old Jasmine Green died after being left inside a daycare van for three hours after the vehicle returned from a field trip. Bruce Harvey, the Atlanta criminal defense attorney, described what happened this way. This was a field trip day, and they had arranged to go on a field trip to Chuck E. Cheese. And everybody, all the kids, you know how excited the kids get about going to Chuck E. Cheese, and it was the first outing, and they loaded up the van, and they went to Chuck E. Cheese, and everybody had a great time, and they came back. When the van got back to the daycare center, workers got the children off and mistakenly believed they'd gotten all of them. It was more than two hours later, when the children went down for a nap, that Jasmine's absence was noticed. Harvey's client, Quantavia Hopkins, who oversaw the field trip, and her mother, who owned the daycare center, were both charged with felony murder. You'll recall that I earlier said Ross Harris is being charged with malice murder. Well, he's also charged with felony murder, just as the daycare owner and her daughter were. What's the difference? Malice murder means that the killer intended to kill. Felony murder refers to a death that occurs during the commission of a crime. So, if someone is accidentally shot and killed during a convenience store robbery, that's felony murder. In Jasmine Green's case, and in Cooper Harris's case, the underlying felony was cruelty to children in the second degree. According to the indictment in the Harris case, and this part is almost identical to the indictment in the Jasmine Green case, Harris did, with criminal negligence, cause Cooper cruel and excessive physical pain by leaving Cooper alone in a hot motor vehicle. In the Jasmine Green case, it was Clayton County District Attorney Tracy Graham Lawson's call as to whether to charge the two women with murder. They're difficult for prosecutors because we have a victim and we have a, a family. It's oftentimes children, and we have a family that's mourning. But on the other hand, we have an individual oftentimes that's never been convicted of anything, has no prior criminal record, and really didn't intend for the child to get hurt or to die. But because they disregarded really their duty of care and, and were negligent, the child died. So if they had hindsight, they would have gone, golly, why did I do that? But they didn't do it at the time, and, and that's why they're criminally negligent. As it turned out, both women were acquitted of felony murder. 
Hopkins' mother, the owner of the daycare center, was found guilty of a single misdemeanor and sentenced to 90 days in jail and nine months on probation. Hopkins was convicted of three misdemeanors and a felony, contributing to the deprivation of a minor, and sentenced to 30 days in jail, followed by nine years and 11 months on probation. Tracy Graham Lawson, the DA, acknowledges that the case was a tough call for a jury. The people there didn't intend for little Jasmine Green to die, ever. They, from all intents and purposes that we knew, that they, they cared for the child and, and were very, very upset by what happened and remorseful. Um, but the actions fit squarely within, we felt, the criminal negligence statute. They, in essence, just pardoned her. That's exactly what they did. Harvey, the defense attorney, said he was grateful that neither woman was convicted of murder. Accidents aren't crimes. Mistakes aren't crimes. Um, even negligence doesn't translate into a crime. I mean, you have to be able to understand that in this world, there are unfortunate events that happen that don't necessarily translate into, into a crime. And that's exactly what it is. It is unfortunate. Um, and it is a tragic um, consequence of, of a mistake or an accident or negligence. But that does not mean that someone um, is a criminal. Such cases nonetheless can be challenging to defend, and that will certainly apply to the Harris case. Well, you know, there's always the emotionalism tied to the death of any child, um, both as a parent and just as a caring human being. Uh, how can you hear about a situation like this without empathizing um, and understanding that someone's life, not, not just someone's life, but, a, but really a child, a child who has no cares or responsibilities in the world other than to grow up like everybody else. So it, it's overcoming the emotionalism, overcoming the idea that, that because a, a, a child has died, that somebody has got to be held responsible. That is exactly what the prosecution in the Ross-Harris case will tell the jury. Someone has to be held responsible. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. And the prosecutors have an infinite supply of ammunition against Ross Harris, rooted in the simple fact that Ross Harris is not a very good person. News of Cooper's death had already gone viral, but what came out at the preliminary hearing drove the story into the stratosphere. 
All rise. Magistrate Court of Cobb County is now in session. Honorable Frank R. Cox presiding. Maybe see. That's the sound of Ross Harris's shackles as he enters the courtroom. Sir, are you Justin Ross Harris? Yes, sir. Lead prosecutor Chuck Boring then called his ace witness. Detective Sider, would you please introduce yourself to the judge by uh, telling him your name and spell it so the court reporter gets it correct? It's um, Detective Phil Stoddard, S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D. And Detective Stoddard, where do you work? I work for the Cobb County Police Department um, with the Crimes Against Persons Unit. Okay, how long have you worked in that unit? I've worked in that unit since December. Detective Stoddard described what happened the day of Cooper's death according to witnesses and in police interviews. About 40 minutes in, Boring set up Stoddard to drop his bombshell. Specifically on the day of the incident, on uh, June the 18th, 2014, in reviewing the computers and phones and things like that of the defendants, did you uh, uncover anything of what he was doing during that day while his child was out in the car? He was having um, up to six different um, conversations with um, different women, it appeared, from the, from the messages from Kick mostly, which is a messaging service. And these conversations he was having with these females were these, what, of what nature were they? Uh, the most common term would be sexting. Um, were photos being sent back and forth between these women and the defendant during this day while the child's out in the car? Yes, there were photos of um, his exposed penis, um, erect penis being sent. Um, there were also photos of women's breasts being sent back to him. We have since learned that Harris was having extramarital affairs. He was sleeping with prostitutes. He was exchanging lewd photos with minor girls. He often used an anonymous messaging platform called Whisper, and he was the grand champion of the short message service. In the seven months leading up to Cooper's death, Harris sent 5,000 Whisper messages and 40,000 texts. 40,000. Prosecutor Chuck Boring, in a later hearing, seemed almost at a loss. Through these other acts that we're going to have to talk about, I think it's very important to show how extensive this is, to show how important these things were to him as compared to his family. In this case, as I said, the level and extent of this man's behavior and activity uh, and showing how he felt about his family and his behaviors uh, outside of it are, are extensive. Um, there are thousands of messages, pictures left and right. I mean, I don't even know how to explain. So, Harris was a serial sexter, a lousy husband, and, in the eyes of many, a despicable creep who sent photos of his anatomy to strange women, even as his son was suffering and dying. In other words, a gift to the prosecution. During the hearing, Chuck Boring explained why. It proves motive because he was unhappy in his marriage. We planned to show that he wanted to live a child-free life or there's evidence to suggest that based on his internet searches. Many people who are familiar with this case, and that's many people, will remember these two words, child-free. It turned out Harris was a frequent visitor to reddit.com. That's a vast social network with millions of members. They post news and comments to the site on an endless variety of topics. Many of the topic areas are classified as subreddits. Here's Stoddard again. He went to a subreddit, it was called Child Free. And Child Free is a, people who advocate living child free. Um, they advocate not having any more children and adding to the, the biomass, I guess is the best way they put it. 
child-free. Does that sound like a motive or what? But don't jump to conclusions just yet. We have a lot more ground to cover. Remember how Harris took his little boy to Chick-fil-A that morning? A little breakfast time with father and son? Well, records show he was having a whisper conversation with an anonymous woman even as he was sitting with his son. Harris replied to a post that read, I hate being married with kids. The novelty is worn off, and I have nothing to show for it. Here's a court record of the ensuing whisper exchange. The woman was tagged, as always in my feelings. At 9.13 that morning, she posted, I have nothing. Every ounce of me is being a perfect, unappreciated wife with two little ones that drain out the rest of me. I don't resent my kids. I resent him. At 9.15, just four minutes before he left the Chick-fil-A, Harris responded to her with this post. My wife gets upset when I want to go out with friends. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. Always in my feelings replied, maybe that's our issue too. I need a break from, quote, love, unquote. At 9.24, Harris responds, agreed, we both need that. This was two minutes before he walked into his office, leaving Cooper stranded in his seat in the car. Even at 9.30, it was already hot outside. One of Harris's worst fears was that he would leave Cooper in the car. That's what he told investigators at Cobb Police Headquarters later that night. During that interview, Harris asked a question that raised the cop's eyebrows. Here's Stoddard on the witness stand again. When you were speaking with him, what did he talk to you and how did he speak about the charges once you told him he was being arrested first for the cruelty charge? When I first spoke him to the cruelty charge, um, he argued it and um, said it was an accident. Did you later inform him he was also being arrested for felony murder? I did. I brought him back into the interview room and sat him down to explain the charge to him. When you told him what he was been char being charged with, what language did he use when responding to you? Um, he looked at me and said, um, but there's no malicious intent. No malicious intent. At the preliminary hearing on July 3rd, a little more than two weeks after Cooper's death, Chuck Boring kept piling up evidence against Harris. Yes, there's more. First, Stoddard described a six-minute video that Harris watched just five days before Cooper died. He is a veterinarian, and he's a very, he's advocate for, of course, you know, animal care. The veterinarian decides to do a demonstration um, about the dangers of leaving your animal in the car. So he goes out to a car, he sits in the car in the middle of the summer, um, it appears to be very hot outside. Um, and he sits there for 30 minutes. And through this video, he's showing you times and he's showing you temperature. The temperature in the car gets to over 117 degrees, or around 117 degrees. And he starts to explain how horrible a feeling it is to be in this car. And he goes over it several times. He goes, this is horrible. He goes, imagine if you couldn't move. If I wasn't a thinking person, I could reason through this that if they were just trapped here in this car. Harris also told police he was familiar with the program launched by Georgia Governor Nathan Deal just three weeks earlier. It was called Look Again, a reminder to parents and caregivers not to leave children in the car by mistake. He watched a TV show where an advocate um, who had lost his child, um, and he's, Ross said, just like me, um, in a child heat-related death, and now this gentleman was advocating for a turnaround program. Um, he was very conscious of this because of this advocate and the turnaround program, and he said he practiced it often. 
So he actually, he learned about how to do that. That is correct. And his claim was he didn't do it on that day, even knowing that. Correct. There was even more evidence to show Harris's knowledge of the dangers of hot cars. Prosecutor Boring noted during a hearing in February, police have said just days before Cooper's death, Harris was seen by co-workers bringing a guitar into the office. A week before this incident, the defendant thought enough not to leave his guitar in the car and brought it into work. And people are like, what are you doing? I don't want to leave my guitar in the car so it could be warped. Showing his knowledge, showing absence of mistake. Now we've covered the most damaging elements of the case against Ross Harris, and they are damaging indeed. But there's a lot more to this story. How will the state prove that Harris meant to kill his child? How will the defense deal with the body blows the prosecution has in store? Jimmy Berry has practiced law in Cobb County for 45 years. He's defended more than 50 death penalty cases, and he has watched the Harris case with a keen professional interest. He's not connected with the defense, but he has a very good idea of the mountain Harris's defense team has to climb. Yeah, the tightrope here is it's going to be very difficult for, to, to get a juror to, to like Mr. Harris just because of the circumstances and because of what he was doing during the time that, that his son was out in the hot car. I mean, it's, it's going to be a tough sell uh, for them to, to like him. And, and maybe the, the tactic is not to get him to like him, but to accept him uh, for the problem that he has. Uh, and sexting is a problem. So if, you know, if you can play it that way, um, you know, maybe you can get some jurors to, to certainly understand um, the situation and, and the fact that maybe he did not intend to leave his son in the car, um, but because of his addiction to, to sexting, that um, he just forgot. Maddox Kilgore is Harris's lead defense attorney. He's a former cop prosecutor who became a criminal defense lawyer a decade ago. He has been around the block many times. He's handled serious felony cases from both sides. He knows where the landmines are. His only public comment so far came in a press conference on the day Harris was indicted. He started off by ridiculing the prosecution's shifting theories of the case. First, he said, the state suggested a financial motive. Then the state said Harris wanted to live child-free. Then prosecutors implied that he and his wife planned the whole thing together. Then the state backed away from accusing Leanna. Kilgore also noted that the state is accusing Harris simultaneously of killing Cooper on purpose and then, in the same indictment, of killing him by gross negligence. The truth is, Cooper's death was a horrible gut-wrenching accident. It was always an accident. And when the time comes and we work through the state's maze of theories at trial, it's still going to be a terrible gut-wrenching accident. All the eccentricities and moral failures of Ross's life aren't going to change that fact. Next on Breakdown, flaws in the state's case, a lunchtime visit to buy light bulbs, and the smell of death. What does she say? She says, I know he loved Cooper a lot. I don't know how to show you. I mean, if there is any other way I can prove to you that he would never do anything to harm Cooper. Can I do anything to defend him? Not because he's my friend, but because I honestly don't believe he could do something like that. 
Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall. 